This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. So we've been looking at the uh, the process of growth, and we've looked um, at faith and time. Uh, faith, which is not the same as positive thinking, and it's not the same as uh, you know the 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 modern uh, cliches on being a person of faith as if somehow, you know, because you associate with some religious uh, uh, breed or, or brand that you therefore are some kind of hallowed individual. But that true faith rests in Jesus Christ and rests in his word. And as a consequence, true faith is strengthened through our times of trial and difficulty. And time that that your life is in God's hands and that uh, he is, he has a purpose that he has begun uh, with your salvation and he is going to complete it in his time. But the focus of your heart is, to, is where you are called to place your life to ensure that your heart remains tender. Um, uh, and that is your responsibility in it. We talked about acceptance as well, that the Father accepts all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, and that acceptance is not based upon you and I having individual merit of any kind. It's not because of the colour of our skin or the, you know, the, the background of education that we have. Um, you know, some of us are scholars, and then there's people like me. Um, you know, fair dinkum, like I did not do well at school. And uh, but acceptance in Christ is not based on academic achievement, financial achievement, uh, societal status. It is definitely not based on being born in a Christian family, uh, whatever that may be. In fact, Christian family is a bit of a, a mixed-up term because the family is not Christian. If anything, the individuals within it are Christians. The home is not. Christian, the individuals within it have to be born again. The home is not born again. Uh, and thereby those individuals create an environment in which the gospel is, uh, is taught to the children or to other family members, uh, even to uh, elderly uncles. And um, uh, so the acceptance that we have is in Christ and we have acceptance in Christ Jesus. And uh, you can go back over those messages. We want to talk today about purpose. Purpose is is a uh, a word that has some degree of mystery associated with it because people go through life often wondering what their purpose is, um, and you may have had that experience yourself. You may be. Uh, a young person and thinking, I wonder what my purpose in life will be. Well, we can we can tell you what that will be today. Because even though Suzanne and I and, and our children, we were out on the mission field for a number of years, that is not the primary purpose that God calls us to as individuals. It's not to uh, to be missionaries. I'm called to be a missionary. That's a secondary function out of my life in Christ. 
Uh, I'm called to be an evangelist. That's my purpose in life. If, if our purpose is tied into some kind of function, we're going to run into a dilemma at certain points of, uh, of life because we're going to look to that activity as giving, uh, for the, for the purpose of giving us a sense of purpose. And, um, and that will become dangerous because uh, if we are not able to fulfill that activity for whatever reason, then we will feel like life has little or no purpose. Uh, and so it becomes a problem. It's, it's like the, you know, the person who might call, you know, he might be the world's number one boxer. But then if he has a tragic accident and he can no longer box because he's somewhat disabled, if his purpose in life has been, or his identity has been, uh, built around being that individual, he's the the world's number one boxer, and suddenly he can't, then he runs into a lot of emotional and psychological problems as a result of that. And so our father, praise his name, has made it very clear to us what his purpose is for us in the word of God, for all believers. So Turn to Romans chapter 8. I'm pretty sure you know this verse. Because there is no better time than now. Than when? Now. Thanks, Daz. Listening away. There's no better time than now to know God's purpose for your life. And... This is based on nothing less than his word. We don't need the word of Anthony Robbins or Dale Carnegie or Norman Vincent Peale. Those two are dead and long gone. Uh, But Anthony Robbins, you know, is the current guru of personal development. Um, We don't need the word of this kind of person to hype you up to a sense of purpose. Because when that person's gone or your circumstances change, problems come with that. So your sense of purpose, the understanding of what God's purpose is for you, has to come from something deeper and more eternal. And this is really important for you to understand. Romans 8, verses 28 and 29. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. So where is God's purpose in that verse for you? Which, which To be conformed to the image of his Son. And so when we talk about purpose as part of the process of growth this morning, God's purpose in your life is that you would continually be transformed from who you are, changing from one degree of glory to another, from this image of the sinful individual that you are into the image of Jesus Christ, the perfect and sinless Son of God. This is God's purpose for your life. It's not that you would start and develop a mega church somewhere. Could God call you to the mission field? 
may be. But your purpose is to be like Jesus. And in the mission field, that's, you know, there's probably no place more vital other than in your home to be more like Jesus. Well, let's lay a little foundation here. Genesis 1 verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image. Now God is in the process of conforming you to the image of Christ. So the first Adam, the head of the human race, was made in God's image. Jesus, Colossians makes very clear that everything that was made was made by him and there is nothing in existence that was not made by him. And so when Genesis 1 says, God said, let us make man in our image, who is saying that? Jesus is saying this. He's the one who put all of creation into existence. And so who did the first Adam bear the resemblance of? Whose image was he made in? He was made in the image of Jesus. Jesus is God. So this means that Adam bore, let's, let's rephrase that. In the fact that Adam bore within, just like you bear within, aspects of personality. You can think, hopefully. You can uh, express ideas. You can communicate. You can sense and feel things emotionally, things that are, um, uh, what's the word, they're not necessarily physical, they're ideas, they're, they're precepts, you know, it's a moving story to hear about uh, Adrian's wife's uncle at 99, my mother's 95 and she's not a believer, that gives me some hope to to hear that. And, and you know, it, it's a stirring thing, it's, a, it's emotionally stirring, to me that's an idea, it's a concept. I don't know the man. I've never met him, shaken hands with him or anything. So I don't physically know the story, but I hear that and it's a stirring thing. This is because you and I are created with aspects of resemblance to God. God thinks, he acts, he feels, he, he has emotions towards us. And this enabled Adam to commune with God and to have fellowship with God. Adam's communion with God, this is very important that we understand, was with God as sovereign and Adam as subject. What's a subject? A a subject is, aside from being a part of grammar, um, a subject is a member of a state uh, of, uh, of some description Um, that is under the rule of a monarch or a ruler of some kind. And so you and I are the subjects of Queen Elizabeth as a Commonwealth nation. And, uh, you know, that's that's the way we are seen under the rule of our monarch. God bless the Queen. This means that Adam was subject to God's will. This, in fact, is the only place where true freedom is found. 
Now, this is the great um, uh, conundrum of life, that people want freedom, right? They want freedom. Young, young people, for example, they tell their parents, I'm leaving, I'm going off to find my freedom in life. And they will struggle for years and years and years and struggle with all kinds of things and find out about the difficulties and the hardships of life as they move out under the umbrella of protection that God has naturally put over them. And so they step out on their own and, and life is much harder than they think, especially when they are in rebellion. Perfect freedom is found as you and I subject ourselves to the will of God, as his subjects. Now, this is a contradiction because, in fact, uh, Paul, um, and, and it's, it's actually a, a Greek surname, is Christodoulos, um, which I used to deliver uh, mail. I delivered mail to an old man named Christodoulos and I asked him if he knew what his name meant and he certainly did. The Greeks are really proficient with language because it's, it's so much of our language is, is come out, comes out of the Greek structure and it means... The slave of Christ. Doulos is slave and Christ, Christodoulos. And, uh, and so, you know, we had some, had a great opportunity to witness to him about his name. That was while I was delivering his mail. And, uh, you know, we know that Adam was beguiled into sin and he chose his own way in preference to God's way. So he had freedom, but it's freedom within boundaries. That boundary was don't eat from this tree. There was a boundary put there. And so he chose his own way and with that choosing of his own way uh, came then the tyranny of sin. So instead of finding freedom in his own actions, he found that his own actions led to an enslavement of sin in his life. Now, this all helps us in laying foundation because there are results of sin. We know that death came upon man and that separation came upon man and that he, he was removed from the garden and uh, then God would ultimately destroy these things uh, in the flood. But there are a couple of other results. Uh, one I just mentioned, that man was estranged from God, but not only was he estranged from God, but his focus became self-centered. Rather than God-centered. And this is an interesting aspect because he becomes dead to God, the source of life, and tries to live to himself in whom is now death. And so there's, there's always this great contradiction that happens when you and I go against the will of God. And he was to be found then in dead in, uh, dead in trespass and sin. But another result came in that when Adam, in Genesis 5.3, it says that when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son. And there's a really interesting phrase in the scripture there. It says, in his own likeness. In his own likeness, after his image. So as if the scripture wasn't clear enough to say that, that now the son of, uh, of Adam's loins was not going to be a, a child made in the image of God, 
Now this next child was made in the image of Adam, who is a fallen creature by this stage. His sin has entered the picture, and so Adam fathers a son, and his son, rather than being in the likeness of God, is in the likeness of Adam. And a tragic likeness this now is, and uh, a fallen image, a son named Seth. So he brought forth mankind through this corrupted image. This, um, in fact, Adam being created in the image of God is, you know, the imagio deo uh, is the kind of the theological term of it, the image of God. This has been part of God's purpose for mankind on the earth the whole time, that you and I would be representatives of God to the world around us. And so this was part of the purpose for God that he would take Israel and separate Israel from the rest of the world by certain rules and regulations that God gave to them and that through obedience that then would become a testimony to the nations around them as to the awesomeness of God and the the power and the majesty of God that they would be seen by the nations around them as having the blessing of God on them through obedience. So Adam was to be this first representative of God on on earth, but because of sin, that representation was broken down. And so scripture talks about God sending a second Adam. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he has made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Hebrews is speaking of at last... After thousands of years, the image of God being back on the earth again. Remember, Adam was created in the image of God, made to be the representative of God on the earth. And it very clearly says in Genesis that when Adam gave birth to his first son, that that son was then born in the image of Adam. So God had to interrupt the sequence in some way and he brought the image of God back onto the earth again and the image of God was in himself the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ who walked on the earth, the image of God restored to the earth again, God's last Adam. Now, our natural birth brings us into the world as sons of Adam. Um, You know, it always makes me Think of the Narnia Chronicles, the Chronicles of Narnia, um, son of Adam. Uh, but there's a very powerful reason why um, Lewis went in that direction because he was developing that narrative of man's birth and the need for that transformation. So our natural birth in, in this world, we are born as sons of Adam Our transition 
into this new person is this new birth. Jesus said that we must be born again if we want to what? See the kingdom of heaven. If we want to go from this world and be in the presence of God in his paradise, we must be born again. There has to be a transition takes take place that takes us from the sinful Adamic condition into the condition of the second Adam, that we are born again into a new life bearing the image of Jesus Christ. And so when we were born again through repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 20, we were born into Christ. And Colossians says that Christ then, you can look that up in Colossians 3, Christ becomes, has become our very life that he has become our life. Now, our Heavenly Father is still carrying out the purpose of making man in his image. So now there is, even though we're a new creation, now there is a transformative process at work in your life to take you from who you have been through the sinful choices you've made in life, to becoming like whom? Like Jesus. God is in the process of making you like Jesus, not making Jesus like you. He's, you know, that's, that's a completely different religion. The Eastern, Eastern mysticism that, uh, that says that there is, uh, uh, you know, that all people have... Um, uh, Christ within them and they always use the term the Christ uh, they use that term uh, which is very interesting uh, deflection but Christianity talks about Jesus making us a new person and us being transformed from glory to glory from glory to glory from glory to glory into the image of Christ that step by step by step by step God is transforming you uh, throughout life into the image of Christ. Now, Peter declares that through faith in Christ, we have become partakers of the divine nature. Have a look at that, Second Peter, chapter 1. Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. And this, this word knowledge is much more than just an intellectual. It's, it's this knowledge of both experience and intellect. So, uh, you know, it's a depth of relationship through this knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God has made you a partaker of the divine nature. There is a 
a seed or an aspect of divinity placed within you. Now, we're not talking some word of faith thing. We don't want you to put some slogan on your number plate, I am a God, right? Uh, you, some of you know a, uh, a, a dear brother, Bill Randalls, who uh, was into the word of faith movement before uh, God delivered him and, and he went to a, a word of faith conference and one of the preachers' number plate uh, out in the car park said, I'm a God. And, um, and so, you know, we're not, we're not talking about that, but God has deposited something of His, uh, nature within you. And that's where the transformation has started to take place. That's why when you became born again, everything began changing within you. Things you thought you now had a battle with all the time. This this war within, because there were things you were given to and things you loved and enjoyed, that now the conscience is awake again. And it's not because someone came along and said, thou shalt not do this and not do that. God has woken something up within you as a new creation in Christ Jesus. And this way, the world around you can see Christ in you. The hope of glory. 1 Corinthians 15 says, And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, which is Adam, what a great term, uh, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus. He's talking about the first Adam and the second Adam. Let's move on. Romans 8, we mentioned before. We know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. This is much more than just a positive affirmation. Paul, Paul wasn't writing a positive affirmation that we could put on our refrigerator. We know that because they didn't have refrigerators. So, so uh, it's easy to prove, right? Easy to prove. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. And this word predestination here is not it, it just can't be plucked out of that context. It has a context. God's predestination here is to something. He did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. This is those who are in Christ. God has a predestined plan for their, those that are in Christ that they would be conformed to the image of Christ. This is the good that God is working in you. God is working all things for good. What is that good? To look like Jesus. He's working all things for good. That, that as you and I grow in the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, as we grow in the fruit of the Spirit, we are displaying more and more and more the image of Christ to the world around us. This is a rest- restoration of the, the, the very first purpose. Let us make man in our image. This is a restoration of that. God bringing all things back so that mankind, those who are born again and in Christ Jesus, would bear the image of Christ and that we would display to the world around us the hope of glory that is within us. This was Paul's determination for each of his converts. In Philippians 4, he says, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, 
for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He's writing to believers. He's saying he's, he's anguishing over them like a parent with young children trying to form in those ones the image of Christ just as parents are trying to form and shape in their children uh, the, the aspect of maturity. There's an open secret about spiritual growth and you can, you can settle life on this fact that Romans 8, 28 and 29 that God is working through all things to form in your life the image of Christ. This means that Christians are strengthened through trials, we, we, as time goes on, are less and less easily frustrated by the circumstances of life as we become more like Jesus, or we should be, and we learn to yield to the will of God, because God has a way of bringing about this in us, that we would yield to his will. And it's, it's not always easy. Sometimes we resist. Or maybe that's just me. You, you, you never would. You know, never. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. They asked him how to pray. And he taught them a... a a model that explains some of the aspects of prayer. He was not saying to them, pray this over and over. He was not saying that. In fact, he would say later to the Pharisees, pray not with vain repetition, as the heathen do. And this is why it's so disturbing when you see these, you know, these um, hyper-faith ga- gatherings and they're just repeating mantras over and over and over. You know, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, and just repeating it over and over. There's there's something not right in that. You know, that there's something of a, a psychological effect in that kind of thing. Pray not with vain repetition. And I, I think prayer is something that is... Uh, not just a repeating of things, but, but it's to flow out of the inner yearning of the human heart that we need God. We need God. And we have to utter that towards Him. And when we become wordless, God will give us words. Jesus taught His disciples to pray and the main way He did that was to demonstrate it to them. And then finally He would demonstrate that in the garden as he was hunched over a stone, pleading, Father, if there is any other way. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where there seems to be only one way and you're looking for any other way. It's, it's a desperate situation. And that's what's going on. If there be any other way, But what he taught them in prayer there was that 
that there is a an amazing liberty in yielding to the will of God. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And this is an important thing. This is what Jesus teaches us. And this is what Paul is talking about, that we are being transformed into the image of Christ, learning to say no to our will and yes to his. And Jesus would demonstrate that in the most poignant way. As Jesus is our God's purpose for you and I, that we be shaped into the image of Jesus, we will therefore learn to say, thy will be done and mean it. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Ponder that for a moment. It's it's pretty phenomenal, isn't it? Second Corinthians three verse eighteen, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass or as in a mirror, this you know this faulty mirror, we, we can't see it all. The glory of God are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And you know, imagine that you look into a mirror and what you can see is not your face looking back. It's, it's something of someone that you know this to be, that it's Jesus. But you're not quite seeing it in full clear perspective. But you're being changed into that image. From glory to glory. Even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, you know, this is not an external change. Although, definitely for many Christians, there are some amazing external changes. You you meet people who have been wrapped up in the gall of bitterness in their lives and they look hard and they, they, they look as toxic as their sin they're holding on to. They, they come to Jesus, their life is transformed and externally within a short period of time you begin seeing these amazing changes. All, all news to me. Okay. We'll look it up. Can I do it? Can I do it some other time? Yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. That might be a great testimony to, to watch. So it's one thing to know God's purpose for our lives but it's another thing to know how to enter into it in the here and now because this is this is where it matters for you and I right now and right now one of God's main mechanisms for change is failure you can definitely tell this is not a word of faith message I know there are some clues here but you're probably seeing them now you know so um, many believers be- become maybe even frantic over failure in their lives and, and they go to uh, great lengths to ignore it or some to rationalise failure and, um, you know, 
and, and we can often talk ourselves into a place of hopelessness because we can say to people when, you know, when a brother or sister says to us, oh, why did you do that? And we, we then go through a historical story. Oh, you've got no idea, man, how I was raised, you know. And, and we go into this amazing story of our childhood and the influences and the, the harm that was done to us. And now that's left us with this psychological and emotional damage. And so whenever these circumstances arise, I, I just can't help it. I fall to that position. But, but that is not a biblical viewpoint at all. Because if you and I are being changed from glory to glory, that means that God is in the process of changing us from what we were. Could you, will you fail? Yes, you will. But God will use that failure to show you areas of weakness that can be yielded to Him so that they can be transformed because Jesus doesn't look like that. And this is one of the main instruments God will use is failure. That we fail, we fall in sin or we we fail in the way we behave and, and God reveals to us a bit more about who we are presently and shows us a bit more about who we are to become. In fact, I would say sometimes God engineers the circumstances to bring about our failure for this very purpose so that we will look at ourselves. The, the great danger is at that point that we, just, we don't just uh, obfuscate things or you know, just ignore things by putting up the story. Oh man, you know, I've always had this, this hair trigger of anger. Runs in the family, you know, it's, it's genetic, you know. My dad was like that. My granddad was like that. I've, I've always had this issue with alcohol because my dad was an alcoholic. My granddad was an alcoholic. You know, people say these things today. There are scientists who say these things. But if you can be a new creature in Christ Jesus, can there not be victory over any of these issues? And so God will use these failures that that rather than you and I looking at the past as a pattern of repeated failure into the future, that we would say, you know what, God wants to make me into the image of Jesus. This issue has to be dealt with. So, Lord, change my genes. That's, that's not the issue. Change my heart is the issue. Change my heart on this matter. You see, failure is used to turn us from self-reliance, which is where Adam went, into self-reliance, to Christ-dependence. That we would start seeing just how weak and frail we are. In actual fact. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. You see, so when we fail, that's the time to hunger for God. He's not surprised. Remember we talked about acceptance, that the acceptance is not in Christ Jesus is not based on some mighty performance of your life. God doesn't accept you more because you're at church this morning. That's ridiculous. 
Your acceptance is in Jesus Christ, being found in Jesus Christ. And so when you fail, God is not surprised by that. He's not taken out of the blue and all. Oh, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. It's more like now, I wonder if they're seeing what just came. And so he helps us to see ourselves for who we are. And this failure aids us to see our true needs. And in seeing our true needs, then we can call out to God for his help in that area. You see, this growth, this purpose that God has to conform you to the image of Christ, it's not mysterious. It's far less mysterious than people make it to be. And praise God for that. Norman Doughty, I believe it's pronounced, he was a theologian and preacher. I'll read a bit of um, prequel to the part I'm going to put up in a moment. He said, if I am to be like him, then God in his grace must do it. And the sooner I come to recognize it, the sooner I will be delivered from from another form of bondage. Throw down every endeavor and say, I cannot do it. The more I try, the further I get from his likeness. What shall I do? Uh, The Holy Spirit says, you cannot do it. Just withdraw. Come out of it. You've been in the arena. You've been endeavoring. You are a failure. Come out and sit down. And as you sit there, behold him. Look at Jesus. Now, don't try to be like him. Just look at him. This is what the word of God is for. That we would look at Jesus. Hebrews 12, when it talks about uh, laying aside every weight and sin that easily besets, and it goes on to say, looking unto Jesus. Doesn't It's not saying to try and have some personal endeavor to be like him, but look at Jesus, right? Just be occupied with him. Forget about trying to be like him. Instead of letting that fill your mind and heart, let him fill it. Just meditate on Christ. Just behold him. Look upon him through the word. Come to the word for one purpose and that is to meet the Lord. Not to get your mind crammed full of things about the sacred word, but to come to it to meet the Lord. Make it to be a medium not of biblical scholarship, but of fellowship with Christ. (coughs) Behold the Lord. Isn't that so often one of our problems that we, we come in and, you know, we read Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 4, and by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, and we start delving into these words, and we get into the Greek, and we break down the, the verse, and we look at them all through Bible Gateway, or, or, or our e-sword, or Logos, or whatever it is. We look at them all there, that way, and we often are missing the larger picture of it as it's revealing something very great to us. And that and this is really one of the great keys of, of proper Bible study is read the context and get the big picture first. Get the big picture first of all. Then work into the detail while you meditate on the Word of God. Find Jesus in that. Behold the Lord. There's a lot in that. His, his point is, 
forego the human effort and let God do his work. Walk in the spirit. I'll, I'll bring it back to it later on if you want to write it down. There's a great hymn written by a Scandinavian hymn writer and in fact some of the hymns that we sing were translated um, by John Wesley from this fellow, Gerhard Terstegen, I think it is. The G at the end there's probably got that G-H-E kind of sound, that bit of phlegm in the throat, you know. So, he said, Thou sayest, fit me, fashion me for thee. Stretch forth thine empty hands and be thou still. O restless soul, thou dost but hinder me by valiant purpose and by steadfast will. Behold the summer flowers beneath the sun. In stillness his great glory they behold. And sweetly thus his mighty work is done and resting in his gladness they unfold. So are the sweetness and the joy divine thine, O beloved, and the work is mine. You see, we so often try to bring about the purposes of God through human endeavour. But the fruit of the Spirit is not the fruit of your labour. That produces a different kind of fruit altogether. It's called the works of the flesh. And if you go into Galatians 5 and you contrast the fruit of the Spirit with the works of the flesh, that's a pretty devastating list, that one. The fruit of the Spirit is what God produces in you. It is what He does in you. Philippians 2 says, For it is God which works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And what is His good pleasure? He is performing in us. He's working for that purpose that we would come to bear the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 so that the life of Christ may be manifest in your mortal flesh. I'll read out the surrounding verses here for this. Verses 7 through 11, 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. See, God has a purpose in all of the trials and difficulties of life, all of the frustrations, all of the uh, seeming opposition and, and all, of, all of those things. God has a purpose to bring us to a point where we would yield from our endeavours and trust the Lord, that he has things in control. I have a, a shared a story in times past of, of a time in which uh, Suzanne and I went through a very difficult time uh, back in Footscray before we went to Macau and uh, there were a number of relationships that had been broken down uh, through uh, 
um, what we believed at the time was was a person's interference. And these were close people. They were people that we had witnessed to and had seen come to the Lord and uh, people that we'd followed up on and had discipled, brought into our home and they'd been in our uh, coming to a Bible study in a house, all these kinds of things. We had strong relationships, or it seemed. And then over a period of some months, we we saw that these people started pulling away from us and, you know, we went through that doubt about ourselves. Have we done something wrong? And so I'd ask them, have we done something to offend you? No, no, why? And, you know, well, it just seems like there's something wrong and, and uh, no, there's nothing wrong. And uh, so they, you know, they moved off from being involved in our lives and, and were connecting with some other people. And so I began praying because, you know, my flesh wanted to sort this out, I tell you. And it wanted to sort it out the wrong way because I knew who was doing what, you know. And uh, I knew what was going on. But I couldn't prove it. And I knew that if I endeavoured to in my strength, that this would become a very bitter situation uh, and it would be used to portray me as a, as a gossip and these people's lives and our friendships would really be broken uh, because they would be dragged into this thing more and more, uh, which is what this other person was waiting for. So I kept praying and praying that God would expose things, bring them to the surface. And one of the best lessons that I ever learned about just waiting on God Three years of just waiting and waiting and waiting for God to do his thing, you know. And uh, anyway, then Suzanne and I, um, we were going to go to Macau. And when circumstances change within a church, um, things change. And so we were getting launched out. Well, these, uh, these people began coming to us one by one and saying, can I have a few minutes of your time? And it started with one brother, and I'll, I'll always remember this, him coming up to me and asking me to forgive him. And I said, what for? And he said, because when I first came into this church, he said, and, and you and your wife showed so much love uh, to me and, and took me in, he said, and then somebody said some things to me. And I really had these big questions about you. And I said, well, you know, so be it. And he said, I, I've learned since that this was all wrong and it was false and um, and I want you to forgive me. I said, you're not at fault. You know, he kind of was. And so I said, but no, for sure, you're forgiven. And so, you know, we hugged and uh, uh, things were good. And that came out of the blue. And uh, the next day, another brother calls me and he says, um, Listen, Lionel, I, I want to talk to you and I want to, um, you know, I need to talk to you about some things. So we got together and he said, I really need you to forgive me. And I said, what for? So now this is starting to sound a little deja vu. And um, so he went through the same story, you know, same thing. Then a third brother who now uh, we have a really restored relationship and it's wonderful. He came to me and he asked the same thing. And I knew that this brother would be a little more forward and, and I'd been praying and so I, I just said to him, listen, you don't have to answer this question. But I've kind of known about this for a long time but I couldn't prove anything and I didn't want to 
create a, a rift or division. Um, but if I give you a name, will you tell me if this is the person who said these things? And so uh, I gave him the name. He said it was. And uh, it was such, it was actually such a relief to me to know that I've been praying about the right thing and to know that it was in God's hands and to know that in the end God vindicated in a much greater way and that those relationships by and large are still strong uh, to this day even though we've moved in some different directions in life, they're still there and there is, uh, there is Christian love between us. But if I had stepped in in my own flesh, it never would have gone that way but for the grace of God. And so, you know, and I'm not saying just sit back and ignore things. It's just that we could not go forward at that point because it would just have looked like people were gossiping because God God was kind of revealing stuff to me. But as time went by, um, we were really vindicated in that situation and we learn something about just trusting God, you know. So, um, yeah, we'll close with that. And Paul says in Philippians 2, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He, he says just before that, that he wants to go. He says, I want to go. I want to go to be with the Lord, but it's better for you that I stay. For me to live is Christ. So while I'm alive, everything in my life is for Christ. I can't wait for that gain. That's that's kind of how it reads to me. To die is gain. That he he just wanted to be in the presence of God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. God God has this purpose to mould you and shape you into the image of Christ. Amen. That's a good purpose. Let's embrace that. Hallelujah. Now, Father, we thank you. We praise you this morning. And Lord, we thank you that um, you've not finished with us, Lord God, at this point in our lives. That from glory to glory, you are moulding us and shaping us into that perfect and beautiful image of your Son. We praise you and we thank you. Lord, we thank you so much for the testimony of Joy's uncle. And Lord, we just ask that you would develop him uh, in what time he has remaining on that sure foundation of Christ Jesus. We praise you this morning. Help us, Lord, just to look to you, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Help us to look unto you, Lord that we would just rest our lives in your hands and trust you. Help us to see in the difficult circumstances and in the trials we face that you indeed do have your purpose. And though we might not understand it at that time, let our hearts rest in it, Lord, while we pray and, and yearn for healing, for victory, for deliverance, that at the same time, we can trust ourselves to your will. We praise you and we thank you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. 
You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.